0: Alright, Luke chapter 4 verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and all, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set those who are down, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus actually gives us a somewhat of a mission statement for his life, prophetically from the book of Isaiah. He says, this is what I'm about. I'm the person that is going to do this. And he shared that with the synagogue in Nazareth. And essentially what he was saying was, I am going to preach the gospel to the poor. I'm going to release the captives. I'm going to give sight back to the blind, I'm going to set free the ones who are oppressed. And Luke records for us in chapter 19 that Jesus simplified the declaration of his mission by saying the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, we've been studying the church and the different ways that the New Testament represents the church. We've looked at various metaphors that have been used for the church, like a living temple, like a flock. We've looked at uh, at least one thing that is not a metaphor, but is actually a declaration of fact, that the church is a kingdom, and we have a king. But now this morning we come to one that's never actually stated in Scripture, but I think it's pretty apparent. And that is that the church is a hospital, the church is a healing community, and Jesus is our great physician. Now what's interesting about that is the church is never ever called a hospital in the Bible. In fact, before Christianity began to care for the sick and needy, hospitals were largely unheard of, especially in the West. And Jesus is never called the great physician, although in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, as the Israelites are making their journey to the promised land, there's that passage in Exodus 15 where they come to the waters of Marah, and they're bitter. They can't drink them. And God reveals to Moses, if you throw this branch in the waters, they will become sweet, and God Touched the waters at Marah, and they were able to drink that. And then God made this promise to them He said, If you will follow me, if you will be my people, I will be your God. And if you obey me and keep my commandments, I am Jehovah, your doctor. I am the Lord that heals you. And I will put none of these diseases upon you that have come upon all the other nations of the world. So, in a very literal sense, in the Old Testament, God reveals himself as our doctor. That is literally the Hebrew word behind the healer. God is Jehovah, our doctor. And when we come to the New Testament, we find that the church is indeed intended to be a healing community. This is supposed to be a place where people get well. And when you look at the background of the word to save, Jesus said, "I've come to seek and to save that which was lost." I think sometimes uh, the terminology has been used in such a way that we kind of back away from it a little bit. It's it's come to mean something other than what it really meant, you know. And we're almost embarrassed now when we hear somebody say, "Are you saved?" And it's like. Whoa, are they a fanatic? I mean, they, they need to find a better way to share the gospel. But what Jesus meant by the term save is to heal, to make whole, to completely restore. The word, the Greek word sozo, our word for save, in the Fullest sense of the word means to bring healing. It means to recover. It means to restore what is broken or lost. Carrie was just sharing that as he was leading us in worship. And Jesus' mission was to be a healer. And he gave that ministry and mission to the church. So in a very real sense, the church is intended to be A a healing community. And when Jesus announced this from the book of Isaiah, I think he was covering all the bases. Listen to what he says. I've come to release the captives. Who are the captives? We're all captives. The Bible says that we are in bondage to sin and to death. We're all captives. We're in bondage. Every single human being on the planet is a prisoner of sin and of death and to a certain extent of Satan. And Jesus said, I've come to set you free. He said, I've come to recover sight for the blind. Very literally. I don't think you can go to this passage and say, oh, this means that Jesus was was coming to help us perceive truth. No, He took people who could not see. They needed a cane. They could not see. And He made them see again. He took people who were lame or who were broken from birth and He restored their bodies. In fact, the Scripture says He healed all who came to Him. That His ministry was a ministry of physical healing. And the church should be that kind of place. In fact... In in the book of James, the letter of James, as he writes to the church, he says, Is there any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord will raise them up. And if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you can be healed. And I really believe that one of the reasons we don't see more physical healing in the church is because we don't fully embrace the totality of that passage. But the ministry of Jesus was physical healing as well as spiritual healing, and the ministry of the church is to be a healing community. How many times... We sit here in our offices, those of us who are here throughout the week, we look out those windows and we hear the ambulances go by and we see the hospital right over there and we keep thinking, oh God, that we could be a place of refuge, a place of healing for people whose bodies are broken and wounded and, and diseased, that we could be a healing place. Because the church was intended to be a place where God is at work. And I don't mean that you know, we're, we're going to ultimately escape death. We know that. But Jesus ultimately did purchase for us total healing. Salvation has its three aspects. One of which is instantaneous. When we are born again and our spirits come to life. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ... And He brings us alive spiritually. That's an instantaneous transformation. There is no more work to be done there. That's done. We're alive in Jesus Christ. Where once we were dead. It's that fast. It's over. And we come to life in Christ. And it's permanent. And then, there's that being saved. That progressive Ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives to gradually reproduce in us the character of Jesus Christ as, as He recovers our brokenness. That's really the third aspect of Jesus' message. To free those who are oppressed. As the Holy Spirit begins to make us over into the image of Jesus Christ, it's a transformation that frankly takes a lifetime. And then there's the resurrection, which is the ultimate future salvation of the body, so that in the end, we are fully restored human beings. We are saved in every sense of the word, resurrected, glorified in physical, eternal bodies that will never know sickness again, spirit, soul, and body fully restored. The ministry of Jesus is to seek and to save that which was lost. And his healing extends to the whole person with the intention of undoing the damage of sin in every realm of life. Now, the church is supposed to be the place where all of that salvation occurs. The church is supposed to be a healing community. Friends, you know I said that when we're born again, when we come to life in Christ, that's an instantaneous transformation. But the Bible says in that moment that the Holy Spirit of God places us, baptizes us into the body of Jesus Christ. We become a part of His family, the church. The church is not an organization. It's not a club. It's not a building. It's not a place that you go. The church is a family. It's a community of faith where Jesus Christ is Lord and head, and we are instantly placed in that family. And the intention is that as we are born again in Jesus Christ and baptized into His body, I don't, I'm not talking about water now. That's just a symbol that, that shows the world what has happened supernaturally. That we're put into the family of God. That this is a healing community. And it's in the church. It's in the church, in the family, that the Holy Spirit begins that process of making us look like Jesus Christ. Friends, I want to remind you this morning, that it is through Jesus Christ that the healing begins by giving us our true identity and an appropriate sense of self-worth. You know, everybody's convoluted about that. There are people that say, you know, how should you think about yourself? What kind of self-image should you have? And there are Christians who'd say, well, you're, you know, you're lower than the worms and then there's self-help people that say we well, ought to you know you ought to think of yourself and and all of your gifts and abilities and, and and there's all kinds of ideas in there but God gives us a true perspective I want to review that with you this morning because it's very important we need to have God's perspective on who we are in order to value one another the way God values us Jesus said to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When you look at that passage, Jesus is telling us the motive of the father in sending the son. The father sent the son because he loved the world. You're not talking about the trees and the rocks. He's talking about the people. He loves the people that He gave His only Son. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. So the Father sent the Son, but the Son, the Lord Jesus, went to the cross willingly. He chose to go. They couldn't arrest Him. They couldn't keep Him down. He went there willingly, submitting Himself as a lamb To the slaughter. And He went to the cross because of the joy set before Him. You are that joy. I am that joy. I am the reason Jesus went to the cross. And then Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 as he comes to the culmination of that great chapter which many feel is like the, the pinnacle of Scripture. He says, What can separate us from the love of God? He that delivered up His only Son on our behalf, how shall He not also with Him freely give us all things? God has given us the best He has in Jesus Christ. So when you put all of that together, if you have a logical mind, I say that because it really is not everyone does, but if you have a logical mind and you put that all together, what does it boil down to? What is the bottom line? God deemed you worth the death of His Son. Jesus deemed you worth going to the cross. That's how much God values you. That's how precious you are to Him. And, and, and friends, if you have never let that sink in, I want to encourage you this morning. Wherever you have those quiet moments out in the woods on a path somewhere or in your recliner by the fire or wherever it is that you have your quiet moments and you can shut everything else out I want to encourage you to think about how much God loves you how valuable You are to Him. How precious is your life? Because that is the basis for the freedom that comes in transformation and healing and everything else. The Gaithers, a number of years ago, and I'm not espousing the genre, the music, or anything else, but just take it for what it's worth. I think it was... uh, I think it was one of Bill Gaither's songs. that He wrote this song, and the words have stuck with me because they're so profound. It went something like this. I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you because the one who knows me best loves me most. Think about that. I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you because the one who knows me best loves me most. Why does God love you? Because you have so much talent you can give Him? Because you're so wonderful? Because you've been a good boy or a good girl? Why does God love you? Friends, God knows you, He knows you. You and I, before Jesus Christ, are lost in sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And God has put on Jesus the iniquity, the sin of us all. God doesn't love us with blinders. He doesn't look down and say, well, I think there's some potential there for being good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that person religious. God looks at us and says, I know you're a sinner. I know you're lost in bondage. I know, I, I know the wickedness that is bound up in your heart. I know your problems. But I made you. You're in My image. I fashioned you in your mother's womb. I have invested with you. My nature. And I want to redeem you. I want to recover you. I value you. And he doesn't love you and me with binders. He sees exactly what we are. And he loves us anyway. This is the most amazing thing. I was at a Conference a week ago, as you know, Carrie preached for me last Sunday. I appreciate that, brother. I heard good things from a dynamite message. By the way, there's a bag back there with your name on it. Don't know if you saw it yet, but it goes with a sermon from last week. <laughs> but anyway, I was at this conference, and I um, this is like the third time I've done it, so there weren't any real surprises for me. But, but part of it is learning how to help people understand their natural talents and abilities and aptitudes, and And in the process, they do some psychological testing. And I won't ask if any of you have ever done the MMP, uh, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. I won't ask you to confess to that because that may already say more than you want to reveal. But uh, there are psychological instruments, you know, that are designed to to get into the the DNA of who you are, you know, as, as a person and your character or whatever like that. And so I took this... We had to all go through this again because we're going to ask people to do it. So I went through it, and I took the test online, and the results were scored. And we did the 16PF, and we also did the Taylor-Johnson temperament analysis. And uh, then on Saturday, he gave us back our results in sealed envelopes. And he said, I haven't opened these. I haven't looked at them. But we went over how to interpret these psychological instruments, you know. And then he handed them back. And, and uh, they have norms. Taylor-Johnson Temperament Analysis has this band of gray that kind of goes through all the different values, and and normal people fit into the gray zone. They fit in the middle, and if you've got outliers, you've got problems. And then in the uh, 16PF, they also have polar opposites, and then down the middle, there's this shaded area, and all the really normal, normal people have fives, And then, uh, as you move toward one or nine, you start getting into more trouble, you know, and, and so you, so that's how they, you know, the fives are perfect, and the sixes and sevens are, are normal, okay, and then the, um, you know, (laughs) and then the threes and the twos and the ones and the eights and the nines, it's like, oh boy, you know, we got trouble here. So, you know, so I get my back and I open it up, and I'm not right down the middle. I'm not perfectly in the gray. And I'm not perfectly in the middle. It's no surprise to me because, like I say, I've done those a few times before. And if I gave you the test today, you probably wouldn't be in the middle either. I, I don't know who those middle people are. I'm looking forward to meeting one someday. But, um, but, but you know, what comes to me is I'm broken. I'm broken. You're broken. We play games. We have defense mechanisms. You know what a defense mechanism is? It, it, psychologists call it that because it's a technique that you have learned to use to defend yourself. You want to protect yourself. And, and, and who are you protecting yourself from? Everybody else. Because inside of you there is this person that is vulnerable and you don't want to get hurt. And so you use various ways of defending yourself. And we call them defense mechanisms. And then there's the reality that you and I have grown up in a fallen world. We were raised by sinful parents. We had sinful brothers and sisters. We went to school with sinful kids. You ever want to see vicious? Look at an elementary school playground. There's viciousness going on there. Kids can be amazingly cruel to one another. It's kind of unbridled. You know, as you grow up, people get more sophisticated in throwing barbs. But when they're kids, they don't know any better. They just kind of attack you frontally. And guess what? You're a sinner yourself. And you've spread your own amount of poison. And here's the point. None of us, none of us sitting here this morning are untarnished, undamaged, unaffected. We are broken people. And a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to hide the truth of what goes on deep inside of here. So that we can present a respectable front to the watching world. And boy, when we come into church, that's when we really got to dress it up. You know, we're going to church now. We've got to really act like Christians. Whatever that means. And we spend a lot of time with that. And a lot of our lives are lived in fear that someone is going to find out the truth. Or that someone is going to hurt us again. Or we're going to stick our neck out and take a risk and they're going to whack it off. And we're going to be left bleeding and lonely and and a sense of rejection. That's why the words of that song were so powerful to me. I am loved. I am loved. I can risk loving you. Because the one who knows me best loves me most. Here's the truth about God. He loves you because He loves you. You have value to Him. Amazing value. That He was willing to send Jesus Christ to the cross. And Jesus loved you so much He was willing to go. And God knows all about you. Some of you that have been listening to me for many years, you've heard me say this before. But it bears repeating. You are never going to do something in your Christian life. One day, you're never going to mess up in such a way that God the Father sitting in heaven goes, Oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that. How could you? I don't want any more to do with you. I can't believe you would do that. That's never going to happen with God. He knows you. There's nothing you will ever do that will cause Him to love you any less. There's nothing you will ever do as His child in Jesus Christ That will cause him to say, I've had it. I'm not loving you anymore. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall angels or principalities or things present or things to come? I am persuaded that neither height nor depth or any other created thing could separate me from the love of God. He knows you inside and out. And he loves you. Now here's the message of the gospel. It's, it's our, you know, we could stop there and, and we would end up being one of those little touchy-feely groups, you know, that gets around and says, well, we just got to everybody accept each other like we are. Isn't that wonderful? I'm such a mess. Oh, I'm so glad. And so are you. But he doesn't want to leave us there. He doesn't want to leave us in the mess. Jesus Christ has sent His Holy Spirit into our lives to transform us so that without violating our essential nature, without changing our personality in the best sense of the word, without making us into somebody or something we're not, He nonetheless wants to transform us by His mighty power in our character in the depth of our being so that we begin to look like Him. That we start to look like Jesus Christ. That we begin to manifest His character. He wants to do that. And so He doesn't want to leave you in your anger. He doesn't want to leave you in your addiction. He doesn't want to leave you in your depression. He doesn't want to leave you in your brokenness. He wants to heal you and transform you. Jesus said, I've come to give you life in all of its fullness. And it's in Jesus Christ that full healing occurs. And hence again, I take you back to the lyrics of the song, I can risk loving you I can stick my neck out for you. I can take a chance with you because you won't damage me, because you won't hurt me, because you won't whack my head off. No! You might do all of those things. But the one who knows me best loves me most. And I'm safe in Jesus Christ. I have a safe refuge. I have an anchor. I have His affirmation at the end of the day when I've been beat up by people. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen every once in a while. I just feel beat up. I hear my Heavenly Father say, I love you. I love you. You're precious to me. Rest in me. And then go out there and love again. Go out there and risk again. Because I'll always be here. And I'll never stop loving you. The church is supposed to be a place where broken people who have been touched by the power of Jesus can come together and begin to grow up in Him in ways that together we grow into the image and the glory of Jesus Christ. The church is supposed to be a healing place because it's supposed to be a safe place. It's supposed to be a place where we can risk failure. It's supposed to be a place where we can be Open about who we are. And others can encourage us to look to Jesus for his healing, for his salvation. Church is not intended to be a community of acceptance where we leave each other in the stew, but it's intended to be a community of love where in the commitment to each other in Jesus Christ, we can grow and become mature. On the back of your study guide, if you have that, I listed... Herb has given this to us before. I just simply put these in a different form. That in the Church of Jesus Christ, these one and other passages, there are certain attitudes that we need to maintain. There are certain behaviors in which we need to engage, proactive. We need to take steps. And there are prohibitions that we need to keep out of our lives. Now, when I say this, my friends, I I want you to know that the church is also a supernatural community. And that none of these things are possible in our own strength, by our own efforts. But in Jesus Christ, in the power of His Holy Spirit, these things are possible. There are certain attitudes, he says... The the Scripture says we need to maintain accepting one another, being of the same mind, bearing with one another, living in peace with one another, being members of one another, regarding one another as more important, being tender-hearted to one another. In fact, the passage goes on, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. I want to ask you this morning, in terms of your attitude about the church, do you value the people in this room? How precious are they to you? I was at the leadership team last Sunday afternoon. I got back to O'Hare about one o'clock or so and finally got to McHenry and made the leadership team meeting. And in our meeting, Ryan was passing around a prototype of the pictorial directory. Remember way back when you had your pictures taken? <laughs> well, they're coming. And he was passing around a prototype and he and Tom had done such a beautiful job and we were looking at the black and white copies of the, all the pictures of all the people in the church. And it, it came to me, and I was, I was looking through those pages. And you know what came to me as I was looking through the directory? I mean, it's well done. It's, it's really neat. But I wasn't looking at the product. I was looking at you, looking back at me through the camera. And what came to me was, I think I said it out loud, I really love these people. I really love these people. I love you. Don't be afraid to say that. Some of you have been hurt, and some of you are struggling with other kinds of security issues, and you're afraid of those words but I love you. You are precious to me. I value you. And I will tell you very honestly, and and Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, he says, not as though I had already attained it, either had already become perfect. It's a very interesting passage because he juxtaposes the word perfect on both ends of it. He says, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what is ahead, I press toward the mark of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. He said, I have not reached the ultimate, neither have you. We're not there yet. We're all in process. And there's still stuff in my life that needs to be fixed. You may be able to see that more clearly than I, Frankly. But Paul says, I'm pushing, I'm pressing. Think barbells here. That's the image. I'm pressing toward the mark of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. I want to be like Him. And then he says this very peculiar statement, and as many of us as are perfect, let us have this attitude. Now, he said, I just said I wasn't perfect. Now he said, But you see, he's not talking about perfection. He's talking about maturity in the second part. Ultimate maturity which will come in the presence of Jesus, and present maturity, which comes if you're on the cutting edge of spiritual development. And I've explained it this way in the past, friends. If an apple tree is in the springtime or or whenever in the summer that it begins to bloom, and it's supposed to have blossoms on it, if you're a blossom, you're mature if it's the time for blossoms. And a little later, when there's little green knots of apples forming, if you're a little green knot that's sour and hard, you're, you're mature if everything else on the tree is there. And then comes the time in the fall when the luscious, red, juicy, sweet, delicious apples, you're all ready to go for lunch now, right? They're ready to pick. Well, friend, if you're still a little green knot or a blossom... When everything else on the tree is a red, luscious apple, you're not mature. And the point of that is is that in the process of following Jesus Christ, the question is, are you allowing Him to work in your life so that today, as far as you know, at this moment in your life, you are where you're supposed to be? Have you grown to the point that you're supposed to have grown At this moment in your spiritual development, are you open to the work of the Holy Spirit? Are you paying attention to Him in your life? Are you following Him? That's the question. And if today you can say, as far as I know, my life is open before God and and everything He's told me to do, I'm doing, then you're mature. Does not mean you're perfect does not mean you have arrived, but it means that you are where God wants you to be today. But guess what? There is tomorrow. And as you move along in the family, other things in your life will begin to bubble up that the Holy Spirit wants to deal with. And now you'll have something else that He wants to approach. So getting back to that, I think I'm mature. Now, you may not think so. You may look at my life and say, Martin, how can you say that? You've got this and this and this. I may not know it. In fact, I may need you to help me with it. That's a part of it. But I love you. And I care about you. And I want you to. To mature in Jesus Christ, I think that you're safe with me. I do not want to manipulate you. I don't want to control you. That's one of the reasons why I pastor the way I do. It's one of the reasons why there's things we don't do in this church. Because I don't ever want to guilt you into anything. If God is not leading you and you're not listening to the Spirit of God, I don't want to be the instrument that's turning the knife all the time, trying to twist and turn and manipulate you. To I want God, the Holy Spirit, to lead you. And I don't think that if you came into my office and said to me anything that's going on in your life, I'm fairly confident that I would not fall out of my chair aghast and say, I can't believe that's true of you. I felt like that a few times and I covered it up, but... Not really. I might be disappointed. And you're probably disappointed. But my goal is to recognize where you're still struggling and to minister to you in the power of the Holy Spirit for growth. Because God doesn't want to leave you there. He wants you to grow up. And He wants me to grow up. So what is your attitude toward this family? How deeply do you love? What are the proactive behaviors? You know, sometimes we talk about church and we talk about it like an organization. And I want to give you a little insight. Again, I've said this before. This is not new stuff. But um, I just want to remind you. What is church about? Well, it's about Awana. It's about youth ministry. It's about leadership team. It's about budget and finance committee. It's about the the budgetary process and, and the offering. It's about the programs. It's about the mission. It's about this Bible study. It's about that ministry. Is that what the church is about? No. In fact, most of the things I just named, you can't even find in the pages of the New Testament. I'm not saying they didn't happen. They had money problems right out of the gate. First of all, they were distributing, they were overlooking the Hellenistic widows. How did that ever happen? Do we have a multicultural problem going on in the New Testament church? And then the next thing you know, Ananias and Sapphira are figuring out how to get their names on the church benevolent roster while holding back the money. And God kind of dealt with that in a pretty obvious way. For those of you who don't know the story, they lied to Peter and they died. That doesn't happen so much anymore but but sometimes we think church is about all this stuff and and i and I think God sometimes is sitting on his throne in the heavens, kind of chuckling in a way, if he's not weeping, I don't know, because he puts us together in these situations. I'm going to put people in the leadership team in this church that are not anything like each other. In fact, I'm going to put some people in the leadership team that are exactly the opposite of the people on the other side of the table from them. Because I want to see what they do when they hit conflict. I'm going to put people in this ministry that have totally different ideas of how it ought to run. So that when they start working together, they're going... The very reason we get into all of this stuff is because God wants to make us look like Jesus. Now let me tell you something, friends. It's more important that you come out of the process growing in the Spirit than that you get your goal Then we do youth ministry this way. Then we administer the budget like this. If we're being dishonest and lacking integrity, God's pretty concerned about that. I don't think we are in our church. In fact, I can say with confidence we're not. Having said that, God really doesn't care what we do with the money. within certain boundaries. But he does care how we treat each other in the process. And he will use things like that where people are invested to bring out the junk in their lives so he can deal with it. And he wants us to be in a safe environment where as that stuff bubbles up, the Holy Spirit can begin to minister to us. And we can learn to forgive. And we can learn to say, I'm sorry. And we can learn to say, I always get angry like this. And I don't know how to stop. Or we can say, my tendency when I don't get my way is to run off and want to take my marbles and go. And please help me be committed. Because that's what I really want to do. It's intended to be a place where God can get into our lives and make us look like Jesus. And so there are these proactive behaviors, giving greater significance to others, giving positive affirmation. You know, one of the things I'm going to share with Nate tonight, because I've come to know him and I know what his his spiritual gifts are, and I also know what his natural abilities are, and I'm going to talk about him being an encourager. God, has equi- he's a Barnabas. He's a son of encouragement. But we're all to encourage and build up and comfort one another. It's to be a place where we promote harmony by confessing our sins, by forgiving, by being kind, by pursuing the things that make for peace. It's a place where we love each other from the heart. And while all of that warm, wonderful, tender stuff is going on, it's also a place where we need to admonish one another from time to time. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Challenge each other. You know what? I'm tired of you doing that. You do Every time we get in a situation, you act the same way, and you need to grow up. Now, you may not say that that way, but I'm trying to make a point. But we need to admonish each other. We need to know that we're loved. And so it's safe. Carrie, brother, I don't read out our conversations, but we were we were talking one morning a couple of weeks ago. This wasn't happening between Carrie and me. I just want you to know that. We've had our days, but this wasn't one of them. And uh, we were talking about passion. And, and Carrie said, you know what I'm all about? Going in the room, closing the door and getting... not." Fisty cuffs, but getting passionate and and saying what you think and pressing your point and getting into it and because you ought to be passionate about what you believe. And you know what? I'm all for that too. There are times when we need to just come apart from the group, get off to the side, close the door, and say what we think. But underlying that, there needs to be that covenant I love you. I love you. I will stick with you. I will pray for you. I will not abandon you. I will not walk out of here, out of sorts with you, even if we don't agree at the end. Because you're my brother, you're my sister. I'm committed to you. The church needs to be an environment where we can be passionate where we can share our feelings with conviction and allow Jesus to minister to us in the midst of it while there's a commitment of love that underlies it. Because aside from whatever you feel about this issue or that issue, you know what? I still love you. And when you're hurting, I want to be by your side. And when you're suffering, I want to be praying with you. And when you've received one of the biggest blows of your life, I want to be there to support you and hold you up. I want to rejoice when the great things happen. And I want to come alongside you and weep with you when your heart is breaking. And I don't care what you think about this or that or the other. We are the family of God. And church needs to be a safe place. Therefore, there are prohibitions, not a place for division, not a place for complaints, not a place for judging, lying, or speaking against one another, and certainly not a place for lawsuits. The church is a healing community where you and I can be who we are. And Jesus can make us into his image. And we love each other through the process. You know? So, what do you take away from here this morning? Friends, God loves you, He has given His only Son for you. You are valuable. You're also broken. And you're in the process of being saved. Your your eternal destiny is secure in Jesus Christ. I don't mean that. But you're in the process of being made to look like Him. And that process sometimes is messy. But this is a place where it can occur in safety, I hope. And meanwhile, you can risk taking chances and loving each other. Because even if you get rebuffed, God is there who loves you ultimately and infinitely. And he will be there for you. Father, draw us to that healing place where not only do we see spiritual healing, but where we become a healing community and we pray for one another and we're also physically healed, emotionally healed, We are restored to wholeness in Jesus Christ. Make us the living church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.